the Bite Size Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 1st, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Russian piano virtuoso Vladimir Horowitz. We think that we know all the geniuses, right? Like being a genius somehow makes your notoriety a given. At least that's what I felt until I began this project. There are millions of quiet or forgotten geniuses in history. And I don't think millions is hyperbole because what, what quantifies or qualifies a genius is at least marginally subjective, I suppose. But our human in history today has been described by music historians and music critics and fellow piano virtuosos as the greatest piano virtuoso of the 20th century, one of the top 10 greatest pianists of all time, the most famous pianist of the 20th century, and the god of the piano. And if accolades do nothing for you and you're more of an awards type of person, he's also won 25 Grammys. With accolades like that, Vladimir Horowitz should be a widely recognized name, even outside of classically trained musical circles. But if you ask five people on the street who Vladimir Horowitz is, you'd probably get a lot of blank stares. So let's do our part to change that and jump into the life of Vladimir Horowitz, the greatest pianist of the 20th century. So Vladimir was born in Kiev. Kiev at the time of his birth in 1903 was part of the Russian Empire, but today it's the capital of the Ukraine. His family was Jewish, and we need to talk for a second about what being Jewish in Russia meant at that time. So in 1791, roughly a century before Vladimir was born, Catherine the Great created something called the Pale of Settlement, and it was this chunk of territory with constantly shifting borders in the western part of Russia. Today, the territory covers like Lithuania, Belarus, Moldova, parts of the Ukraine and Russia and Poland. So back then, if you were a Jew, that's where you were forced to live, kind of like a much larger version of the ghettos that the Third Reich would create in the 1930s. So not so great, if you ask me, Catherine. But if you were a Jew back then, you had to live in the Pale of Settlement unless, unless you were university educated, affluent, of noble blood, or a highly gifted artisan or an important merchant. This last category is what spared Vladimir from being born and raised in the Pale of Settlement, as his grandfather, Joachim Horowitz, was a successful merchant who donated very heavily to the arts, and he was a member of the First Guild. So that made him and his descendants exempt. In order to live outside the Pale of Settlement, though, the family had to become assimilated Jews. What that meant was that they were expected to assimilate to non-Semitic society and adhere to its customs and practices and essentially abandon their traditional Jewish practices and rituals. Basically, the price for not living on a Jewish reservation was that you had to pretend to not be Jewish. Vladimir's grandparents and parents had been forced to assimilate in order to live free outside the Pale of Settlement. And when Catherine was succeeded by Alexander II in 1855, it seemed like things were starting to turn a corner. Um, Alexander II began to encourage more and more wealthy and educated Jews to leave the Pale, and people began to think that maybe the Pale would soon be a thing of the past. Unfortunately, Alexander II was assassinated in 1881, and rumors began to spread that the Jews were somehow behind it. Once Alexander III became emperor of Russia in 1881, he started regular planned anti-Jewish pogroms. And these were basically very specific terrorist attacks aimed at the Jewish community. 
thousands of Jews were killed during the pogroms. Jewish babies were literally torn apart by Russian mobs. And there are countless photos of the bodies of dozens of murdered young children lined up like pencils in a box. Researching this made me so sick to my stomach. I had to take a break to go hug my kid. So between the start of the pogroms in the early 1880s and up until 1920, when the Russian empire completely fell, over 2 million Jews understandably fled Russia to Israel and the U.S. So this was the setting for Vladimir's childhood, but he was thankfully at least partially spared the full brunt of the horrors because his family had assimilated and they were living outside the Pale of Settlement. His father, Samuel Horowitz, was a very prosperous electrical engineer, and he was able to provide a comfortable life for his wife, Sophia, and their four kids, of which Vladimir was the youngest. When he was 10, Vladimir was allowed to play the piano for the famous pianist Alexander Skryabin, who was a dear friend of Vladimir's uncle, also named Alexander. Skryabin was blown away by this 10-year-old's natural talent, telling his parents that this kid is a genius. Uh, Vladimir had been taking home lessons with his mom since he was six, so his parents knew that he had very strong natural ability. Thinking ahead, his parents very wisely changed his year of birth on his birth certificate from 1903 to 1904, making him uh, exempt from being drafted into the military and the possibility of him damaging his hands. In 1912, at the age of nine, he entered the Kiev Conservatory, a state institution of higher musical education. At the age of 17, he had his first solo piano recital. Word began to get around and he started to tour all over Russia. But due to the country's economic woes at the time, money was often an issue for the venues that he played at. So he usually had to accept payment in the form of chocolate or butter or bread. Between 1922 and 1923, he performed 23 concerts of 11 different programs in the city of Petrograd alone. But Vladimir still felt that his destiny lay in composing instead of playing, but he had to focus on just the playing because it paid the bills more consistently than composing did, and his family had unfortunately lost all of their worldly possessions during the Russian Revolution, and his father's business had been nationalized. The pre-revolution Russian Empire had been a hot, bloody mess, especially for Jews. But the communist rat's nest that the country was now descending into was an entirely different set of problems that Vladimir just didn't want to be a part of. So in December of 1925, at age 22, he announced that he would be going to Berlin to study with Arthur Schnabel, the famous Austrian pianist. He told everyone that he would be back soon, but in fact, he had no intention of returning, and it would be over six decades before he set foot in Russia again. So he lined his shoes with American dollars and British pounds, and he headed to Germany. He gave his first concert on December 18, 1925, in Berlin. He would continue to tour around Europe, performing in a lot of major cities like London and Paris. In 1927, officials from the USSR asked him to represent the Ukraine, um, where he was born was now the Ukraine, in the International Chopin Piano Competition in Poland. Vladimir had no intention of doing anything for or with the Soviet Union, so he headed for New York City in late 1927. His debut in America was on January 12, 1928, at a little place called Carnegie Hall. It didn't go as smoothly as it could have, since the conductor, Sir Thomas Beecham, was giving his American debut as well. Sir Beecham was from England. And the two men did not see eye to eye on the appropriate tempo of the pieces that they were playing. Sir Beecham told him to the side, he goes, really, Mr. Horowitz, you can't play like that. It shows the orchestra up. 
Thankfully, the audiences were so blown away by Vladimir, they didn't seem to mind. Of course, music critics could tell a little something was off, and New York Times writer Olin Dowds pointed this out in his column, but he also lavished praise on Vladimir's incredible singing voice and his perfect technique, saying that the passion of his playing reminded him of a tornado unleashed from the steps. What most impressed his audience and his critics was the excitement that his playing elicited. Piano recitals usually tend to be fairly tame affairs, but Vladimir's enthusiasm was positively contagious. Dowds mentioned in his column that it had been years since a pianist created such a furor with an audience in the city. In 1933, Vladimir would pair for the first time with the world-renowned Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini. Their rapport was instantaneous and magical, and they would perform many times together throughout their respective careers, including recording studio albums. There was another member of the Toscanini family that Vladimir would have an even longer and more intimate relationship with, and that was Arturo's daughter, Wanda. Vladimir would go on to marry Wanda that year in a civil ceremony, as he was Jewish and she was Roman Catholic. This wasn't a huge issue for either of them, as neither one were particularly devout or practicing. They also didn't speak each other's native tongues, as Wanda spoke zero Russian and Vladimir spoke very little Italian. Thankfully, they both spoke French, so that was their primary form of communication. So this challenge also wasn't a big issue. What was a big issue was the fact that Vladimir was gay. So why would a gay man marry a straight woman? That's a complex question. First, we must consider the time and the context. In the 1930s, most of American society was not obviously open to the idea of homosexuality, and it was treated like a mental illness that could be cured. Being gay was classified by the American Psychiatric Association as a confirmed mental health issue until 1973. So for Vladimir, speaking the truth about his identity and his feelings meant being labeled as mentally ill and probably being forced into psychiatric care. So that's one obvious reason why he chose to not be open. Another reason could be that he was conflicted about his identity. Possibly he was bi, and these feelings of attraction towards both sexes caused him to feel confused, and maybe he was hoping that it was a phase that he would one day pass out of. Remember, he was now an international public figure. He would not be able to be gay quietly. Living openly would have probably meant the end of his musical career and intense social ridicule. A third possibility could have been that Wanda was aware of his feelings, but that they chose to have a more companionate marriage, possibly even a lavender marriage. A lavender marriage, if you're not familiar with that term, is a marriage between a man and a woman, both ostensibly straight, but in reality, one or both of the people are gay, and there's an understanding that the marriage is purely for appearance's sake. The term lavender was uh, first used in a 19, excuse me, 1895 British newspaper um, because the color back then was considered representative of gay men. Lavender marriages were super common in the golden era of Hollywood between the 1930s and the 1950s when movie stars had to sign something called a morality clause in their contract, which basically made them promise that they would always do everything in their power to maintain an image of a faithful heterosexual partner to the public. Some famous lavender marriages include Rock Hudson's marriage to Phyllis Gates, Judy Garland's to Vincent Minnelli, uh, Rudolph Valentino's to Natasha Rambova, Van Johnson to his best friend's wife, Eve Abbott, and the list just goes on and on. 
But Vladimir and Wanda were by all accounts extremely close, she being one of the few people who was allowed to critique his playing. She stuck by him through bouts of severe depression and alcoholism following years of failed electroshock gay conversion therapy. Vladimir denied being gay publicly, once joking that there are three kinds of pianists, Jewish pianists, homosexual pianists, and bad pianists. Their union would produce one daughter, Sonia, born in 1934. She died in 1975 at the age of 41 from a drug overdose. Whether it was accidental or intentional was, was never discovered. In 2013, there was an article written by Kenneth Leadham. He was Vladimir's personal assistant for five years in the early 50s. It was published in the New York Times, and in it, Kenneth claimed that he and Vladimir had been lovers the five years he worked for him, saying, We had a wonderful life together. He was a difficult man, to say the least. He had an anger in him that was unbelievable. The number of meals I've had thrown on the floor in my lap, he'd pick up the tablecloth and just pull off the table and the food would go flying. He had tantrums a lot, but then he was calm and sweet, very sweet, very lovable, and he really adored me. It's truly a shame that Vladimir lived in such a repressive and bigoted time. Social change, including acceptance for and appreciation of people of all gender orientations and identities, starts at home. So please, if you're considering becoming a parent, ask yourself if your child's sexual orientation could ever be an issue for you, regardless of what it turns out to be. And if it is, or it could be, then please reconsider having kids. All right, back to Vladimir. So Vladimir and Wanda tour the world until 1939, when he sets roots down in the U.S., becoming a citizen officially in 1944. During this time, he was also taking on very select students who were piano virtuosos. The amount of students that he took on is kind of conflicting as there were seven confirmed known students of his, but he swore there were only three, basically disavowing the other four, who all had ample proof of working with him for years. His biographer, Glenn Plaskin, attributes this to the sort of erratic nature of his behavior at that time, possibly due to self-medicating to cover up his conflicted feelings about his sexual orientation. He was very busy recording albums. Uh, he worked with Sony and Columbia. He finally finished his last album four days before he died in 1989. His childhood dreams of becoming a full-time composer had kind of fallen by the wayside at this point, and he was covering the likes of Mozart and Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and Schumann. His albums were obviously amazing. His first recording of Liszt's Sonata in 1932 is considered the definitive recording of that piece, even to this day, um, you know, well over three quarters of a century later. But his magic seemed to climb to new heights when he was performing in front of a live audience. When he performed Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3 in front of Rachmaninoff, the composer said he swallowed it whole. He had the courage, the intensity, the daring. But Vladimir didn't just do big music. He did romantic, intimate pieces with the kind of gentle playfulness that they required. He was not a one-trick pony by any stretch of the imagination, and there seemed to be no piece that he couldn't bring the best out of. He also had a playful side with the pieces that he played. He was unafraid to improvise a bit or even change up whole parts of compositions that he felt were stale. Usually such audacity would have been met with total condemnation by most in the musical world, but Vladimir reimagined these songs in such a way that even the living composers whose work that he had altered, like Rachmaninoff, applauded his daring changes to such theoretically sacrosanct pieces. 
There was the occasional critic that felt that he was being a rather precocious upstart by daring to tinker with the standards. Virgil Thompson, a New York Times critic who constantly bashed Vladimir in his column, called him, quote, a master of distortion and exaggeration. And Vladimir shot back with, yeah, well, so were Michelangelo and El Greco. In terms of his technique, it was regarded as otherworldly by almost everyone that knew him. He was most famous for his octave technique, in which he played incredibly complex, precise pieces in octaves with extraordinary speed. It was said that he played the way that every classical pianist is taught that they should play, but few, if ever, actually perfect. Some historians have hypothesized that Vladimir may have actually had a hyperactive, nervous, or auditory system, which rendered him so sensitive to the minutia of music that he was able to detect the most subtle imperfections that normally escape the human ear. Piano prodigy actor and scathing wit Oscar Levant said of Horowitz that his octaves were brilliant, accurate, and etched out like bullets, and he asked Vladimir whether he shipped them on ahead or carried them with him on tour. Quick note on the technical aspects of his playing. He loved really stark musical contrasts, super bold and brash double fortissimos, and then very gentle pianissimos. That means he could go from super loud to super quiet without it sounding really awkward. The actual position of his hands was unusual for pianists because he kept his palms lower than the keys with his fingers totally straight, but regardless of how emphatic or energetic the piece was, he almost never raised his hands above the fallboard. The the fallboard is the cover that comes down to cover the keys. He even had a preferred time to perform. It was Sunday afternoons because he felt that audiences would be the most relaxed um, as opposed to during the week when they were working. In the 1980s, he hit a bit of a rough patch. Uh, He had been undergoing electroshock gay conversion therapy treatments, and they were not working, shocking. (laughs) And he was turning to pills and booze more and more. He did some tours in the U.S. and Japan in the early 80s, and he was having problems remembering and controlling his hands. So he took a step back from public performances for two whole years. A Japanese newspaper that covered one of his concerts in Japan at the time described him during this period as a precious antique vase that is cracked. This was one of four mental health sabbaticals that he would take throughout his career. He emerged in 1985. He was off the pills and the booze, and a lot of music critics felt that the music he made during this time and his death in 1989 was his best work. In 86, he announced that he would be returning to what was then the Soviet Union for the first time in 60 years. There was a sort of gradual and reluctant healing going on between the U.S. and the USSR at the time. So these concerts that he gave were not only musical experiences, but they were also social and political ones as well. Most of his concerts um, had set aside the majority of their tickets for high-ranking Soviet party members, so very few average citizens got to experience Vladimir uh, in Russia. He followed up this tour with a European jaunt. He performed in Amsterdam and London and Berlin and ended his tour with um, some performances in Japan, so he was able to redeem himself following his rather disastrous previous Japan tour. And he finished off the year by getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Reagan. His last tour took place in 1987, ending in Germany on June 21st. He passed away following a heart attack in New York City on November 5th, 1989, at the age of 86. My sources today were the Frederick Chopin Institute, Wikipedia, and Steinway & Sons. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Vladimir Horowitz. Please join me tomorrow, October 2nd, when we celebrate the birth and life of Air Force officer and first African-American astronaut, Robert Henry Lawrence, Jr.